Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. an interesting word, isn't it? I mean, to be refreshed, it kind of implies that you used to be fresh and then something happened and then you were unfreshed and then you replenished, right? You got a drink, you got some food, you rested and then you were refreshed. It's interesting, the power of a good prefix has the capacity to change the whole word. been thinking about prefixes a lot lately. You know, it might be that the best prefix in all the English language is re. Just R-E. Re. I mean, it's a simple kind of unassuming prefix. It, it, it simply means again, right? Like to do something again, to take another shot, to give it another go. In the English language, There's like more than 4,000 words that begin with re. And in the Bible, in our sacred text, the scriptures are crammed with, with all kinds of re words and mostly verbs, like actions to take in order to start again, to renew, to remember, to repent, to refresh to recreate. And and out of all of the the words that we find in Scripture that begin with re, that imply starting over in the faith or giving it another go or, or taking one more run at it, maybe the most dominant word, the one that appears more than any other, like 400 times this word appears in Scripture, it's, it's the word return. You know, it's true. It's as if the whole of Scripture itself is punctuated by all these amazing stories of individuals who return. And not just individuals, I mean, to be sure, there are like, you know, spouses who return and stories of siblings who return. 
Stories of groups of people like, like families or, or tribes or nations, all of whom return to, you know, to one another. They return to a, a space, a land, a home. But the thread that weaves all of these stories together is that they're returning to God. And that's what connects you and me to each of these stories. And it's not just as if the Bible is this collection of unrelated, kind of disjointed stories about returning. But when you think about it, the entire sweep of Scripture from beginning to the very end is one kind of meta-narrative, one overarching storyline about returning to God. You know, the Bible begins with this amazing story of beginnings where God, out of God's own love, creates existence itself, creation in which there's this garden and in this garden there's a tree and this tree is watered by some rivers and in this garden there are these people who are in union with one another and with God. And, and they, they live in perfect harmony and And there's grace and community and sharing and mutual submission and love. And at the end of the Bible, there's this other story of another garden, a new heaven and a new earth. And in that garden, there's also a tree, a tree of life that's watered by this magnificent river. And and at that garden, we're told there will be all the nations of the world who will be in perfect union with one another, fully redeemed with God. But in between the first garden and the last, there are all these stories of returning to God, sagas of each of us. And maybe the most compelling of all is the story that really dominates the whole of Scripture itself. It's the story of God rescuing a people, the people of Israel, from bondage in Egypt. But after He rescues them, He He takes them through the wilderness to begin shaping them, forging them into a people. I will be your God and you will be my people. And he enters into a covenant with them and and has an arrangement and teaches them that they might live in a way in this world that reflects the kind of character of the God who has rescued them. It was a design that would be beautiful. All the world would know that there is a God who is intent on returning to a place of wholeness as long as they lived by covenant. And they did for a while. It worked for a good while. They built this great united kingdom. They occupied the land, built a magnificent temple uh, to God's glory. And then a palace, a beautiful, opulent palace that, well, God never demanded nor really desired. But what was worse was this this newly freed people, just generations before, had begun to behave in ways that not only didn't reflect the character and the ethic of the God who liberated them, but they actually began to take on the practices of their former liberators. They began to conscript uh, slave labor (laughs) to build a temple honoring the liberating God. They used slave labor. They had forgotten where they had come from. They had forgotten who they were. And at this time, the prophets began to stand and speak. 
they stood among the people and began to, to cry out and say, you have forgotten where you've come from. You have forgotten what has been demanded of you. Return to the Lord. Return to Him and live, for if you do not, destruction will come. There were these, these prophets like, uh, well, like Zechariah. Zechariah, uh, we read that, that God declares, Return to me, says the Lord Almighty. Return to me and I will return to you. Or, or Hosea. Hosea is another prophet, a minor prophet in the Old Testament. He's writing at the time of the, of the exile and, and he says to his people, O Israel, come back. Return to the Lord your God. You're down, but you're not out. Plan your confession and come back to the Lord. And all through the prophets, it's the same theme again and again and again. Come back, return, return, come home. The trouble is, the message of coming home, it, it's never as easy as it sounds. Sometimes you can be so far gone from where you used to be that you forget how to come home. Or maybe that you know how to come home. Whether it's to come home to a, a physical space or a family or a friendship or spiritually to come home and return to God. It may not be that you don't know how to. It may be that you assume you've been gone so long that your return would not be welcome. It's kind of like this, this guy I met at a former church. I saw him in the parking lot of a grocery store. He was a member of our church, and his family was one of those families that came to church all the time. You know the kind I'm talking about, right? Every time the doors were open, they were there. They volunteered. They were leaders. They taught in Sunday school. He was a deacon. Their children were in the youth group. But then they're... Their family came upon some hard times. The business took a big hit. Uh, then there was some trouble in the marriage. One of the kids began to kind of act out, out of control. And it was a real mess for a little bit. So I, I went to see him and couldn't find him. He wasn't at the home where I went to visit. He wouldn't answer the calls that I would make on the phone. In fact, all the leaders did Everything that the leaders are supposed to do in a church, the deacons, the Sunday school leadership, we all reached out to see how he was doing and where he was. We couldn't reach him. So one day I happened to run into him in the grocery store or in the parking lot of the grocery store. And I said, where have you been, man? I've been missing you. We've all been missing you. And he said to me, well, you know, we've been going through a lot of problems lately. Our family's had a lot of trouble. And I said, I know. So, but, so where have you been? And then he said, you know, he said, well, with everything we're going through, we just wouldn't feel right coming back until we get some things together. I, mean, I just wanted to scream. I, I just wanted to, to cry out like a, like a prophet of old. I wanted to say, do you not know that the church is supposed to be like a, like a hospital for the hurting and the wounded and the, the sick? Do you not know that the full sweep of Scripture itself is this one overarching dominant call from God to come home, 
to return. So there's this one prophet uh, in the Hebrew Bible, the prophet Joel. And Joel is unique in the way that he calls the people to return to God. Joel just doesn't just stand up and, and say, hey, get your act together, come on home, it's time to return. I mean, that is the theme of all the prophets. However, Joel goes a little further and he, he tells them how to return, what to do to return, and, and why to return. He says in the second chapter of this, this book, the book of Joel, rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to God, for, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents from punishing. Rend your hearts. You know, we don't use that word a whole lot in our experience, do we? The ancient mind understood exactly what it meant. To rend something meant to tear it apart. And the ancients would, would, during moments of deep grief and sorrow and loss, they would rent open their garments as an expression of their loss and agony and remorse. And it's really a, quite a beautiful expression when you think about it. I mean, it's as if all the fibers of your garment all, all come unwoven. They come and disarray. They just kind of unravel as if to say to those who are around, to family and community and to God, I am unraveling inside. It's a, it's a great image to rend the garments. <laughs> but the ancients also knew something that you and I know on a, a kind of a gut level. It's easy to kind of feign our remorse, isn't it? I mean, to make being sorry a kind of show. I mean, I think about children when they're caught doing something wrong and they say they're sorry, but they still have to be punished. And they're like, well, I said I'm sorry as if saying sorry or doing something like that somehow is the magic word that removes all problems, right? When our kids were really young and they would get in trouble, they say, well, I'm sorry with that kind of tone. Well, no, you're not. You're not sorry. You're sorry you got caught, right? You know, but it's not just children, it's all of us. Whenever any of us cross a boundary or we violate a trust and we know we've done it, sometimes before we actually rend the heart, before we actually feel the remorse, we'll try to cover it up with magic words. We'll offend someone and send some flowers. Or, or we'll cover it with some humor and we'll try to just be positive and nice and move forward as if to, to put a, a layer of frosting on the cake of insult, never really experiencing the kind of remorse that leads to change. God says, don't rend your garments, rend your heart. Because only when you rend your heart, when you tear apart your heart and say, I am done, I am the one responsible for my own destruction, only then are you able to say that you are in the position where God can rescue. Because why? Well, Joel says, 
because God is gracious and God is merciful and God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So the first step to returning to God is to rend the heart. But the second is also an R-E word, repent. Now in the Hebrew mind, to repent of something was way more than simply to feel bad about something you did. To repent is not just simply about feeling sorrow. It's about taking an action to repair what you've done. To repent in the Hebrew mind is the Hebrew word shuv. The Hebrew word shuv literally means to stop. To stop in the direction where you're going. To stop moving in a direction that takes you further and further away from God. To stop in the lying, the cheating, the the unproductive thoughts, the patterns that lead you consistently into self-destruction mode, right? You know whatever it is that routinely takes you away from God. But shuv is more than just stopping. Shuv literally means to stop what you're doing and turn around 180 degrees and move in the opposite direction. Shuv means to return. Maybe one of the best stories about returning and maybe the most well-known story in all of Scripture happens in the New Testament book of Luke. And the story is told by our Lord. He says that there's this man who has two sons. And the younger son comes up to the father one day and, and demands that he receive his inheritance, which in the first century was the equivalent of saying, Dad, I wish that you were dead. It was a complete insult. And, and yet this father wasn't overreactive. You know why? Because this father was, well, he was gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So he, he said, okay, son. And he gave him his inheritance. Well, the son went off to a foreign country and he just blew it. I mean, he partied day and night. He spent all of his wealth, all of his inheritance down to the last dime on prostitutes and parties. And well, in the old King James, there's a word that's used to describe the behavior of this, this younger son. It says he squandered it on riotous living. Not great. Well, once everything was gone and he had spent everything that he had, he realized his desperation. Sometimes you have to hit rock bottom before you realize what you had. Yeah. So he goes and he hires himself out to a man who allows him to feed his pigs. Now, in the first century, if you hear a story that has pigs in it, Jesus knows that telling a story about swine is going to make the ears of his Jewish listeners really stand on end because you cannot get more dirty, more unclean than a pig, right? 
you remember from Leviticus, there are some animals that are clean and some that are unclean. And this younger son finds himself not only feeding the pigs, but the text says that he finds himself longing to eat from the slop that the pigs were eating. And you know you're in a desperate space when you salivate over slop, <laughs> when you realize that the, the swine have more than you have. And, and he begins to reflect that back home, if he were to return, his options would grow because he remembered that his, his father has servants, I mean, slaves who are living better than he is living. And so he began to think to himself, I cannot slip any lower than I am. And when you come to that place, when you come to a place where you recognize, my Lord, how did I get here? You begin to think of your options. And he, he realized if he simply returns to the Father, though he's not worthy to be the Son anymore, maybe he can be hired on by the, the Father as some kind of a, a slave. So all the way home, his long walk home, he rehearses this speech. And the speech is, is heartbreaking when you think about it. And he's repeating it again and again to himself. I'll say to my father, I have sinned against heaven and earth. It's as if he's saying, I've rended my heart. I've rent my heart apart. And, and yet I'm not worthy to be called your son. But if you will hire me and allow me to be one of your servants, here I am. So he practices this speech all the way home, feeling completely unworthy. And it, it occurs to me sometimes when you hit rock bottom, before you decide to return, it's interesting the voices that you listen to. It's interesting the version of your story that you choose to believe. He was absolutely convinced because he had dined with the swine. He was absolutely convinced he was unworthy to go home. So he goes to the father. Well, before he even gets to the property, we're told in the text that the father sees him from a far distance and he bursts through the door of his house and he runs. He did what is the most undignified thing in the first century for any father to do to any of the, those who are under him is to run to him and casting all pride and all ego out the window. He ran to him because he had been waiting to see him come. He had thought the very worst that he was dead, that he was gone. He had gone months and years without having his younger son sitting at the table with his sense of humor and his version of stories and inside jokes and it's been years since he had seen him thinking the absolute worst and there he is walking down the road toward home returning and the father runs he breaks out in this full-on full-throttle sprint to his son and when he arrives the son begins to give his speech but he can't because the father has engulfed him with this bear hug and he's smothering him with kisses and then he turns and he says for his servants to bring out three powerful symbols of the family he brings out a robe and wraps it around him he brings out a ring and it still fits his finger because he's still the same son and he puts sandals on his feet all three symbols to indicate not only to him, but all the world, this son is mine. 
and this is his home, and he has returned. See, it's interesting to me the version of the story that we listen to. Just when we think we have done what makes us unworthy, the one who is gracious and merciful, the one who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, runs to us to engulf us with identity and welcome and rescue and salvation. How long has it been since you've been home? So the Lord says that because the father was so overwhelmed to see his son and because the son had come home, the father, the text says, killed the fatted calf, which is code language for he threw a big party. He gathered all of his neighbors and friends and family members. They struck up the music. They got a DJ. They started a barbecue and it was on, right? And they celebrated the return of the son. But like I told you a moment ago, every good return story has multiple perspectives. You got the son who thought he was unworthy and you have the father simply delighted to welcome him home. But you also have the older brother who had been faithful his whole life, who had done everything that the father had ever asked him to do. And he's working and he... He hears the music from this party going on for this rebel son that had run away. And he smells the scent of the barbecue. And he comes to his father and he questions his father. And there's deep anger and resentment and bitterness in his heart because he, he doesn't understand. He says, Father, what, I've been with you my whole life. I've been faithful. I've been a servant to you. I've been a dutiful son and and never once can I remember you ever even killing as much as a, as a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. And yet this, this son of yours, he doesn't even have the, uh, the wherewithal, the, the, the courage, the love in his heart to call him his own brother. He says, this son of yours goes and squanders all that the family gave him and, and, and ruins the family name. And he comes home and you kill the fatted calf for him. The father was patient because this particular father was gracious and he was merciful and he was slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he said, my son, you have always been with me and everything that I have is yours. Not just a goat and not just a fatted calf. Everything I've ever had is yours. But this brother of yours, he corrects his thinking. This brother of yours was lost and now he's found and he was dead and now he lives. You think that I'm being unfair, but where, where you don't understand is I never intended to be fair. Grace has nothing to do with fair. It has to do with celebrating any who come home. Thank you.
You know, this, this story has a, an interesting conclusion, right? Uh, Luke never tells us how it actually ends. There's the father and the older brother standing outside the entrance of this party that's meant to celebrate the return. And you see the older brother struggling because every good return story comes with some struggle. Turns out this return story is not simply about the prodigal, his younger brother. This return story is about everyone in the story, including you and me. All of us, in some ways, need to come home sometime. So Luke doesn't end the story the way you would expect. The conversation stops between the father and the son, the older brother that is, and and he invites him to come in. He begs him to come to the party. And yet we don't know if the older brother actually chooses to go in or to stay outside. See, the kingdom of God is is thought of as, as this grand banqueting table, this party where all are welcome to come home from wherever it is that we've been to return to God. And we all have a choice, which leads us to the very last step of what it means to return. The first step is to rend our heart. The second step is to repent, to stop the direction in which we are going and turn and go home. But the third step is to respond. Maybe the question is not as important, did the older brother go into the party? And maybe it's not even as important to think about the younger son and did he go into the party? But maybe the question that our Lord is most interested in answering is this, will, will you, will, will I? Because we have a choice to make. We can stand outside and pout with the older brother or we can go inside and party with the family. The choice is yours.